Hello and welcome to The Limitless, the podcast between. This is episode 299, the penultimate episode. This is uh, a recording from uh, a recent Saturday online meeting, an investigation into the nature of evil focused on uh, Jimmy Savile with a number of uh, participants. problems with power today, which seems fitting for the subject matter. And uh, I've just come from a failed plumbing project, I shouldn't say failed, but interrupted, can't, couldn't finish it because I didn't have the right parts. And that also seems appropriate, symbolically speaking, power and plumbing, the underworld. Power because the power went was out this morning, and I'd actually just shifted. And starting with mundane stuff because this is you know technically officially or formally or traditionally what have you. This is the land made man meet meeting space. So generally there is a focus on land stuff, but obviously today I, I did choose a subject that was quite far removed from that stuff really the opposite end of the spectrum, the anti-natural end. Although I did throw in that uh, oxymoron of natural evil, only afterwards I think, what did I mean by natural evil? How am I going to talk about that? What is that? So anyway, that's always good to have something there that's that's unknown. It's a big question mark. But anyway, uh, yeah, at the ranch, uh, I just uh, arranged to have the power, the electricity companies switched because the the, the uh, bill for March was 175 euro for one month, which for those who don't know is about 250, 200, 250 US for one month, and they don't even have uh, electric heating yet, so that's just for hot water and refrigeration and computers and ordinary stuff, so it was quite shocking. So I looked into it anyway and found out that if I switch the same company but a different kind of account by this third party company would help, uh, it would go down almost by 50%. So I set that up and then this morning there was no power in the house, which I assume was related to the switch over. And then so I did a lot of troubleshooting, which basically had to go into town because nothing works. Here, in terms of communications about electricity, um, well, I've got a little cell phone, but I don't have any uh, credit on it, so I couldn't make any calls with it. Uh, and my own, our ordinary phone is hooked up to the internet, so it's it's all electrical. Anyway, um, I couldn't solve it in town, and when I came back, I just thought, well, I'll check the switch whatever you call those things, the switchboards, and uh, sure enough, the main switch switched itself off for reasons unknown, so I could have fixed it, boom, you know, in five seconds if I'd thought to check that. 
as it is, I didn't, I didn't, and I missed energy work and did a lot of running around. And the only reason I'm sharing this besides it's just an easy rambling intro just to keep us or me grounded in the ordinary everyday stuff is, is power, loss of power. And, uh, the other, and then the other thing is the plumbing. Well, I've already really covered that. Don't need to go into the details there, but um, plumbing, of course, has to do with the systems of distribution, water distribution under, under the surfaces. So the unconscious, the emotional, the hidden emotional life. And uh, I'm pretty sure they, they do have to do with today's subject matter, which is evil. And to be uh, fully transparent, as I try to be, although this was a very spontaneous and impromptu choice of subject for today, there was also once I thought, I feel like talking about evil again. Uh, because of watching this Netflix documentary on Jimmy Savile, it's about two and a half or three hours long. It doesn't really reveal anything new, won't surprise you, and it's actually fairly main, mainstream, not not a whitewash, but almost might as well be a whitewash, really, in a way, how little it really shows. Um, but besides that, I did think, well, why don't I try and reach my old audience and see if they're out there? Why don't I try something that might actually bring in some new faces and larger numbers? Admittedly, I did it in the way that I often do things, which is uh, potentially self-sabotaging, but certainly not calculated in terms of the you know, ma maximum success at the superficial level, because I just did it last minute. And in fact, there was only one sign up from somebody who hasn't come to any of these meetings before and they, they haven't shown up. So once again, that was a big fail. Doesn't, doesn't matter, people have shown up, the usual respectable number, slightly more actually than the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I got to go through a bit of triggery feelings, like why is nobody signing up? I mean, I expected out of 250 registrants. I thought quite a number would be interested in this kind of exploration. Um, but who knows, maybe they've all come because I've become a landmade man. And they want to get away from all that stuff. Who knows? It's irrelevant, except insofar as the bid for power and influence is relevant to the subject matter, Jimmy Savile. And, uh, I think one of the things that prompted me to think it's time to talk about that stuff again, however briefly, was that I found myself while watching the first part of the documentary, not so much to say. Is any, did anyone watch it, by the way? No. Okay, well, you don't need to. Everyone knows enough about Jimmy Savile. Nobody's in the dark about who we're talking about here. No. Um, yeah, I found myself having a certain amount of sympathy for Jimmy Savile, and like I, I was saying to Michelle, my wife, you know, he, I don't actually find him repellent per se. Or I don't, anyway, I just I couldn't quite 
figure out what my reactions to him were because some of it was there was a certain amount of sympathy not in the sense of pity or feeling bad for him but just like I don't know I don't know what, what, what other word to call it but I just didn't feel like condemnatory towards him by the time I watched the second part I did start to feel disgusted by him just to just to cut to the chase in case anyone's feeling worried but it did in that interim it did bring up certain questions that I explored in Vice of Kings, which is, um, can, you know, can we condemn or even judge an individual we perceive as committing great evil if we don't fully understand why they're doing it, as in what's motivating them, what's going on internally while they're doing it, you know, what the whole experience is for them. And... Uh, Lastly, and most importantly, well, what, what it's for, why, why do Misao exist? Why human beings like that exist and why they have so much power and influence? What's it for? So anyway, so I had a quite a long late night conversation with Michelle, my wife, and, uh, and that led to me thinking, well, there, there are things still to explore and things to question. One of the things that came up on that, conversation was that Jimmy Savile was a predator, a natural born predator, you could say. Actually, I would question that. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I want to question here today. Um, but certainly, you know, he was a predator, a human predator, and preyed on human weakness. And if we go to the nearest comparison point, in the, we go to the animal kingdom, and, and what came up in that conversation was a tiger. And a tiger is something that we admire and find beautiful, even though it's terrifying. But we don't think, we don't call the tiger evil, even though it's terrifying and destructive and we wouldn't want to get in its way. You can't really be neutral about a tiger, was one point I made, if, if it's in your vicinity. You can't afford to be neutral about it. Um, but you don't want to hate it either. You certainly don't want to fight it. That would be just stupid, unless you're armed, I suppose. Um, but, it, but there doesn't seem to be a very strong correlation there between someone like Jimmy Savile and the tiger, because, as I say, that would make that would turn Jimmy Savile into something to admire. And if I'm really honest, there was a feeling of very uncomfortable admiration for Jimmy Savile while I was watching that, because of how uh, how unusual he was and how and how effective so so the, so the two went I can't say they're a million miles apart because if we admire a tiger it's not just because we think it's aesthetically beautiful which certainly wouldn't no one would say about Jimmy Savile he is repellent you know, visually in every way I mean on the surface everything about him is kind of repellent but we also admire the tiger or great white shark example I brought up, which is maybe a better one because great white sharks are kind of repellent in a way. Um, we admire them because they're so powerful and so effective at what they do, I think, if we do admire those kind of creatures. And even their ruthlessness. And uh, we, well, maybe I'll just say I, I have a, a certain amount of uh, 
unequivocal respect for natural predators because they, they're natural. They seem to just embody a side of nature, which although it's terrifying and violent, uh, is natural and has a certain beauty to it, which is inseparable from it, from it being terrifying. And with it, so with Jimmy Savile, uh, although there was none of that, because there's nothing really apparently beautiful about Jimmy Savile, on the contrary, it seems to be ugly in every conceivable way and even intentionally ugly. Um, his, his, his efficacy as a predator was quite awe-inspiring. When you, when you watch the way in which he manipulated human beings and the way that he deceived and the way that perhaps this is central to it, the way that he broadcast his predatory nature, he didn't try and disguise it. In a certain sense, he disguised it utterly because he acted like a clown. So the opposite of anything formidable or frightening or powerful, you know, a goofball. Uh, but he didn't hide, he literally didn't hide his dark, violent, powerful side as a, as a kind of underworld figure who used violence. Like he, he told the press about that at a certain point strategically on the one hand, and then on the other hand, so, you know, everybody knew that he wasn't just a goofball and he wasn't just a DJ, he was also a hard nut, heavy duty guy who would break people's kneecaps and stuff. Like that was kind of openly known. It just, these two perceptions coexisted side by side. And I think people kind of admired him more that he had this side. Uh, feeling that they were safe from it, that it was either in his past or it was just a, a separate and you know, a parallel life he had to to the DJ and the, the Jim will fix it, fixer. Uh, but whatever, whatever kind of reasoning went on, and I don't think it was very rational the way that the British nation was groomed uh, by Jimmy Savile and the powers behind him. Um, on top of that was the fact that he also joked openly, and they weren't really jokes, this is the eeriest part, about the way that he abused young girls. I don't think, I haven't, I don't remember hearing or finding him joking about doing it to boys, so he probably had a, probably that was part of his PR, his self-image creation methodology that he didn't, he didn't introduce the idea that he was also a homosexual predator. Uh, because it was kind of Jimmy the lad was, was central to the jokes he made about abusing young girls or not necessarily openly abusing them, but sometimes it was openly abusing, as in he, there's, there's one scene in the, in the film, or one clip in the documentary where he jokes, quote unquote, about how he drives around in his van and he kidnaps young girls and then he sells them. That's, that's an example of something that's probably literally true maybe even down to the detail, certainly that he procured children for high power politicians and entertainment figures and royalty in Britain, and that he would have got some sort of financial, some sort of reward for that, certainly including financial, probably. Um, whether or not he actually abducted them in his van is, is bit, you know, it's a bit of a hair split there. Uh, and so there's a number of similar comments that he made along those lines over decades. I mean, loads actually, but a number that I've come across. And uh, what's one thing that's striking about them is, is that they're not, I mean, how exactly are they jokes? 
because even if they were, as people assumed, I suppose, were completely untrue, they're not really jokes. They're just somebody who says something that's untrue and it's funny because it's untrue. Like there's nothing inherently funny about saying I drive around a van, abduct young girls and sell them. There's no humor in that, there's no wit, there's no punchline. It's only funny because it's unexpected and, oh, he must be joking. You gotta laugh because otherwise you're taking it seriously. So I, I can't even quite think about, much less articulate, the kind of subtlety and cunning, perception mad, manipulation and psychological uh, spell casting that's involved in that, that, that way of communicating. It's, it's not a joke, but the fact that people laugh at it turns it into a joke, which thereby makes him uh, gets him off the hook. He's admitted to something. Everyone around him has heard him. They've acknowledged that he's doing this thing and they've chosen to laugh rather than think that it might be true. But essentially they're laughing because they know it's true. So essentially they have consented, they've consented to be complicit with it. So uh, to me, What's compelling about Jimmy Savile isn't, isn't the, uh, the, the man himself. There's a certain sick fascination in the man himself. And we could go there today in terms of his interior life and you know, what he did to himself by becoming what he became and what the consequences are of that. That's a whole big question that I explore in Vice of Kings more around Alistair Crowley. Like what are the consequences for a soul that chooses to to intentionally do evil in the world as an instrument of existence, as, as, as a part of nature that is anti-natural. I, I don't even know how to square that circle, but, but, but these, these beings exist and they do what they do. And so I don't see how anyone can just say uh, that they're not part of nature. Like, I don't know how we would, kind of argue that so not part of nature how did they get to be part of nature what do they do you know did they they trick god into letting you know I, it, we go around and around so for me the analogy with jimmy Sauer, a better one or these kind of predators a much better one than a tiger or a great white shark is a tick or any kind of parasite and i do feel that those kind of creatures represent evil and the existence of evil in the world I think that a tick is as good as embodiment of evil in this world as any that we would ever need. It doesn't mean I look at a tick and think, you're evil. I might take a certain satisfaction in killing it. I certainly would have no pity, have no pity about it. But I don't really hate the tick. Uh, at least I don't have to put it that way. I might, I might have an emotional. The disgust might be so strong that I feel kind of, moral hatred of that creature and hence I want to say it's evil but really what I mean is it's evidence that something is out of balance in the ecosystem and in in existence that these ticks exist and that they not only do have this hideous way of living off other living creatures but they they put disease into them I mean Lyme's disease possibly a man-made thing maybe ticks are man-made how could we be sure? 
It could be one of the first, you know, nanotechno insects. But but even leaving that aside, that that the, they exist, or at least that they're so prevalent, may well be a consequence of human, uh, well, entity-driven human behaviors and agendas that have caused a huge imbalance in the system, the natural system of the planet, and so caused parasitical creatures to, to prevail, to become prevalent. And so that means my unfinished point about Jimmy Savile, what, what interests me isn't him that exists, uh, well, well, it is that he exists actually, but him, you know, the details about him, but the fact that he exists and, and what, what created him and why and, 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 and what, um, well, it gets quite complicated because you say what supported him and what enabled him and you say, well, that's the, that's the levels of power within society. But as it, even this Netflix documentary pointed out, one person on it, that has to include the, the, the ordinary people who worshipped in the Sabbath, who considered him to be a man of the people and a hero, a working class hero who loved him, like people love Michael Jackson. Even though Jimmy Savile didn't even write any good songs, couldn't even dance. I mean, Jimmy Savile actually had nothing going for him as an entertainer except um, a kind of brazen, shameless lack of all inhibition. And it is, there is something it's hard not to admire about that. Although the more I saw Jimmy Savile now and then, now and then, doing his Jimmy Savile, uh, the more pathetic it looked, actually. He, he, he wasn't funny. He wasn't talented in any way at all, except in this uh, way of manipulating human beings and preying upon them, if you can call that a talent. And in fact, even uh, his lack of talent was part of his cover because it made him seem like uh, just not even worth thinking about very much, except these big things he did. It was more like, well, Jim himself, he's just a weirdo and an oddball, and he's not even very gifted. So, poor guy. So, a bit of maybe even feeling a bit bad for the guy, but as a human being, but and he never had a girlfriend. Uh, but he raised millions and millions of charities, and he made uh, thousands of kids dreams come true i mean horrible you know materialist consumer driven dreams like wanting to drive james bond's car and things like that but nonetheless and very destabilizing imagine jim will fix it. i don't know does everyone here know about jim will fix it yeah uh charlie do you know about jim will fix it Okay, well, Jim Fix It was this very sort of the head cornerstone of Jim, Jimmy Savile's power base in the culture. Was, it was this kids' program where children would write to him and say, I want, I want this to happen. Can you fix it? Can you make it? For me? So he was a fixer for kids. They'd write their fantasies to him. Who knows if there were sexual ones in there? I don't know why I'm smiling. Pretty horrific. But, but it just didn't occur to me when I used the word fantasy, but, you know, kid fantasies. And uh, and then he would they would pick certain children and then on that show which I grew up watching every week they he would they would arrange it for that child's fantasy to be enacted 
Um, but what was actually happening in the meantime or during you know, in the backstage was in the dressing room. So he would visit those children and he would sexually abuse them, sometimes rape. Uh, and so, gosh, I mean, it's so it's so vast uh, and chilling the whole thing and the spectrum of it. Because what occurred to me there was uh, the complicity is on all the levels. We've got the highest level: the royal family, Margaret Thatcher, MI5, MI6, the police, uh, celebrity culture, the BBC. Uh, if I've forgotten anyone there, I mean, obviously there's many, many institutions, but I think I covered the main ones. Um, and then at the bottom, you've got these victims who, who, who were complicit because they didn't, they were too afraid to say anything about it. And they felt somehow guilty and responsible as well. And um, uh, they, they saw they, um, it's hard to say exactly how, but many of them would have felt that they were the only one. They wouldn't have known for sure that there were others, although the next thing I was going to say kind of contradicts this. They also saw that he, he did what he did to other children sort of publicly, or at least he joked about it, but there was, there was even footage of him you know, touching up young girls, teenagers, I said, I don't think there's any of children uh, on camera. Um, but certainly he joked about it with, often, I think, with his victims present. He joked about what he did to them in a way that was sufficiently concealed that, as I said, people could just laugh and think it was just Jimmy being outrageous. So, so those so the victims would be uh, constantly reminded of the fear that nobody was going to believe them, that this was a guy who hung out with Pope and with Prime Minister and Elvis Presley and the Beatles, and they were just some kid who managed to get on his show. And who was going to believe them? But then also, in fact, what well, they would start to think everybody knew because they would know that he wasn't joking. And they would think nobody cares because everybody's laughing when he's joking about what he did to me. So unbelievably horrific. But anyway, my point was, my point was, is that th that's the spectrum. Those are the two ends of the spectrum. And in between, you have everything else. Because in between the highest uh, institutions and individual power, power within Britain uh, and the Jimmy Savile's victims, the children, the working class kids, that's everything. That covers everything, everyone. So Jimmy Savile isn't any more than Hitler. Well, it's a weird comparison. But Hitler obviously openly assumed power and openly caused mass destruction. So it's very easy to just blame Hitler. But it would be very, it would be impossible to say Hitler acted alone or, you know, Hitler was just a freak kind of accident, if only. I mean, they, they do have these absurd beliefs that you could just go back in time and assassinate Hitler. Uh, none of that would have happened, I say absurd, because the point I want to make here is, is that uh, a Jimmy Savile or a Hitler is a is a um, the equivalent of a of a boil on the, on the human body that is the result of an internal uh, infection in the system. So the boil is a point where that infection is becoming visible, and uh, some of the poisons are coming out. 
but not in a way that's going to heal the system, but at least in a way that alerts the awareness of the system of what's going on on the inside. So, and even I mean, in that analogy, the whole system's trying to get rid of some toxin that's running through it and pushing it out. And the point at which it's coming out at is the boil, is the Jimmy Savile, is the Hitler. So, so then does that, does that make somebody like Jimmy Savile not so much an anti-natural or an unnatural or an inhuman individual, but a natural human response to an anti-natural inhuman system? In a certain sense, Jimmy Savile, uh, well, Obviously, it's not it's not fair to say that he was he, he was more sensitive or empathic to what was going on than others, because that's just the opposite of that. That's that's the Christ, somebody who, who embodies the evil of the world in a way that they sacrifice themselves to it. They don't embody the evil so much, but they they embody the human condition in a way that they become a sacrifice to the evil system. That's the Jesus way. The Jimmy Savile way or the Hitler way is the inverse of that. It's to become the evil and to align oneself fully with the evil uh, as a way not to be a victim of it. And yet, in a certain sense, the effect, the potential um, meaning of it is, is, is almost the same, like Christ and Antichrist, because it, it equally allows us to, to, to see the nature of the world. Like, Jesus came along, he got crucified, so everyone could see the system is evil because the purest, best, you know, uh, human that comes into it, he gets killed. That, that clearly indicates the system is evil. Jimmy Savile, opposite thing, he gets raised up as a hero uh, by the same system, but he is the most impure, most evil human. But it shows the same thing because the system that kills Christ is the system that raises up Jimmy Savile. So the bottom line then is judge not lest you be judged. If you live in the glass house, are you going to do you want to cast a stone? He is without sin, cast the first stone. How can I judge Jimmy Savile if if what Jimmy Savile shows to me is, is that I am part of the human condition that gave rise to Jimmy Savile? I'm as bad as Jimmy Savile. I just don't act on it. Now that's that's a that's a huge uh, difference, but only if I'm fully aware that I'm not acting on the same urges that drove Jimmy Savile, which means I have to be fully aware of those urges, which means I have to understand Jimmy Savile and not think he's some kind of freak or some kind of monster. How could anyone do that to know exactly how someone could do that, why they would want to? Who wants to go there? Right? That's the scariest place you can go. That's scarier than being a victim of 
Jimmy Savile. And then enters the, the compassion. Better to be Jimmy Savile's victim than to be Jimmy Savile. And it's kind of Beauty and the Beast. Right? Who could shed a, a tear for that guy? Because what happened after it came out, right after she died, and they showed this in the, the end of the documentary, it was their idea of a resolution or closure. It was uh, cancel culture moved in. Let's cancel Jimmy Savile. He was a bastard. He was a monster. Let's even tear down his tombstone. I was imagining that if they'd been even more, if they'd been more honest and been willing to be more extreme, they'd have dug up Jimmy Savile's body and they would have beheaded it in the public square and played football with his head and set fire to his body and then danced around his body, spat on it. Because that, that's the scapegoat mechanism and that, that's the catharsis. But, not, but, but by doing that, they would be, and by doing what they did, they were, we were, whatever, I wasn't part of it, I'm part of the British you know, race or whatever. Um, they were uh, distancing themselves from him and from their own, uh, uh, I want to use another word than complicity, I mean, their own guilt, their own accountability.
so I'm not sure where to go from here. Um, I think everyone here today and anyone who's followed my work uh, long enough probably already knows enough about the shape of hell and, and knows enough about how we're embedded in it and that's why the whole landmade project man impulse or trajectory project exists so so although this does seem worth revisiting for me I mean, there's still a lot of unanswered questions and unresolved stuff in here enough for me to feel passionate about it um uh, I don't think we need to linger too much on it. In a certain sense, I don't. I don't think any of us have, have yet come close enough to really recognizing the nature of our society and our system. And so, I don't think it ever hurts to underscore that a few times you know, every week. Uh, but there probably are more pressing issues or more richer veins to mine. Uh, but I'm not sure exactly what, what they are. I mean, what 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 feels unsaid so far in all of that is, you know, what what does all this mean at a soul level? Right? What what became of Jimmy Savile's soul? What did he do? What he did to himself by doing what he did to others? What 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 are the consequences? And, and you know, what, what, what's the equivalent for each of us? Because with great power comes great responsibility, absolute power, absolute corruption. If you have more and more power like Jimmy Savile had and you take less and less responsibility, then you become more and more corrupted. So you could say that the amount of evil he did was inseparable from the amount of power that he had. And it was a vicious circle. The more power he got, the more evil, the more evil he committed, the more power. Very, I mean, a negative kind of power, not, not, not a natural power, but entity-driven, system-based, anti-life power. Uh, so, there but for the grace of God go, go you or I. I mean, not, no one here has had the opportunity to commit the kind of evil that Jimmy Sowell committed. So we don't really know. We don't know what, what it's like, you know, how the temperature is like at the, those degrees or the air, kind of air. But, so we have, all we know is our uh, life and experience and we all know about abuse of power. I mean, not just being victims of it. We've all abused our power. Even if you've just masturbated, we've abused your power. In my view, anyway. Eating junk food is an abuse of power. When you think of ourselves as our children, as a population, our world, how many cells have we needlessly tortured and killed? 
for example. I mean, there's a number of different ways one could go. Uh, so, I mean, Jimmy Savile is relevant and useful and worth talking about uh, in terms of how, how far a soul can go to, to its own damnation, in terms of uh, what our culture really looks like, if we could, if we would see it in its true colours, then sure, why not Jimmy Savile? Why not Jimmy Savile? Like, I mean, we think of Hitler as representing uh, Germany in the 30s. He became the embodiment of some zeitgeist. And, uh, and Jimmy Savile same, but Jimmy Savile was 50 years and his reign was 50 years. So it's closer to Castro in Cuba or Franco in Spain or something like that. As I say, not quite the same. He wasn't making big decisions, but he was advising the people who made big decisions. That was in the documentary. Um, yeah, so anyway, so, so that is useful. What does, what's our, how does our world work? Um, then the last thing that is useful I think I've forgotten it now, but that was more to do with coming, coming, bringing it all the way home. I'm not quite sure. I, to, I don't remember what it, what it was exactly. It's possibly that sort of things I've already said, uh, but maybe something that would tie all of this together is uh, Jimmy Savile. If, if the human experience is all part of a shared energy field and even a shared organism, then Jimmy Savile is part of that organism. No matter what he became in the end, the entity possessed and you know an instrument of darkness that maybe had very was kind of hollowed out of human qualities. Nonetheless, he was born. He would presume he was born of a woman like other human beings and was born human. Uh, and so he's still, still, unless unless you attain some total damnation, uh, he's still part of the. The collective shared human energy field. So we're part of, he's part of us and we're part of him. I mean, we share the same air, we share the same molecules, share the same history. I mean, because that's my, my overall feeling with Jimmy Sowell is, is it's not, there's a fascination for understanding the world, then there's the horror. And the, and the disgust and also fascination for what he was, like a, a, an actual boogeyman, you know, a real-life boogeyman. But then there's the sympathy that I started with. And, and, and also what I started with was just realizing there's something in me that, that admired Jimmy Savile and, and it was, uh, and it related to just recognizing the power of the predator. And so it's hard not to admire that, but I would say it's hard not to admire it because it's, it feels safer to admire it. 
because there's part of us that would want wants to become an abuser of power, to become powerful and abuse the power in order to escape the role of victim. So there's something in me yeah, that, that has affinity with himself. Perhaps it is, not just because we're both from Yorkshire. And I know that's the thing that, that I spent much of my life ident trying to identify and trying to liberate myself from, trying to expunge it or integrate it, which is the same thing. It's, you know, I think we can only get clear something out of our system if we can digest it, we can integrate it. Um, so, so yeah, so there's this uncomfortable sympathy for the devil, which is inseparable from an affinity with the devil, something devilish in me. And then there's, there's the good part of me, uh, the soul part of me that, that, that I, I think feels uh, terrible pain and compassion for Jimmy Savile and actually wants to somehow rescue him. Because I mean, I've had that, it's been running through my life with different characters that I've had a parasocial relationship with. So, but I mean, I don't realistically think that that's some sort of objective, except so far as generally we, I think, the opposite of abuse of power, which is using power responsibly, responsibly is, is serving the collective, serving others, and looking for the lost sheep, most of all. Right? It's the sheep that's lost that, that counts for more than the 99 that aren't lost, because it's lost. And, and the shepherd has to bring the whole flock home. Um, uh, I was, was come away something, but I forgot what it was. Oh, um, yeah, no, I don't realistically think uh, much I can do to save Jimmy Savile's soul, but uh, I've got my own. I mean, my brother, for example, my brother, he, 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 uh, he wore a top hat. He, in, he came closer to embodying evil than, than most people do and anyone else in my life, I think. And he was, he was my brother. So we probably all have ancestral influences that, that we, we need to resolve, absolve, get free of. And I'm not going to use the word like forgive because it's, such, it's too big a word, I don't think. I don't think we understand what that word means. <clears throat> uh, and certainly, you uh, forgive something like what Jimmy Savile did. He would take us, each individual victim would have to, and even that, like, what would that take? Um, but to, to, to put it in its context and to allow, allow ourselves to, uh, recognize its proximity to ourselves. I mean, I, I don't know if I've got actual ancestral connections to Jimmy Savile. I know I've got family connections, as in he, he knew my family in some small way. Uh, they would have been in the same room together once or twice, the same airplane with my father, because he got his autograph, although Jimmy Savile never said he never flew. So that might have been a cover story. Except, I mean, frankly, they might have gone to the same parties which is where it gets scary. 
Uh, I mean, I might have gone to one of those parties. I mean, I might have been taken to one. See, I, I don't know. It's in the case of Jimmy Savile, he, he was, you know, he was predating in my neck of the woods. So the forest, so, so he, you know, I could have actually been victimized by Jimmy Savile, even though it's very, it seems very unlikely to me. But that's probably not, it's not likely to be true of anyone else except Jim, Jim's Yorkshire. But, you know, he's in the general neighborhood, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter because there are Jimmy Savills everywhere, just not big, famous, gaudy, you know, neon sign Jimmy Savills, not, not that kind. That, that's pretty rare. But uh, um, Michelle was wondering who, who's Jimmy, who's the equivalent now of, of, of Jimmy Savills? And I actually thought of Russell Brand, but you know, reminds me a bit of that. But anyway, um, um, yeah, the family that, that it's we're, we're closer than we know to to that world. Epstein's dead and gone, so we're asking who's the New Epstein, but yeah, it did seem because Epstein was providing for the royal family, that was what Jimmy Savile was doing, so there definitely seemed to be some sort of chain of command there with Epstein and Savile or, or changing of the guard. Um, yeah, I think I mean that's that's probably what I'll end on there as far as uh, well, asking others to. Chip in is um, just the most frustrating thing, perhaps, about that documentary. I didn't find it particularly frustrating, but was that people are only acknowledging, as far as they have to acknowledge, that there's a complicity, that people did know, that, that, that he grew in the nation, that we're all part of it. There's, there's some token acknowledgement. But you know that people go back to their lives and they'll carry on worshiping celebrities and they're carrying on sending their kids to the daycare centers or, or you know nursery school and they carry on uh, obviously going to hospitals <laughs> we're going to stop going to hospitals even though jimmy sell had free reign of all these different hospitals and you know mental asylums uh the, the penny can't drop for most people all the way and and so this this idea and in a certain sense this this reality that Jimmy Savile was moving in a parallel universe to the rest of us. In a certain sense, there's a truth into that, but not really. It, it only looks parallel to us. It's like if you forget your dreams, you think that there's some other life going on there that's separate. But if we had full memory of our dreams, we would, we would know it wasn't a separate life or a separate reality that it was, you know, this life is couched inside that life. That's my point of view anyway about the dream life. Um, so the same is true as in Visor Kings, that uh, it only looks par like a parallel world if you're, if you're out of the know, if you're not in the loop. For Jimmy Savile, he could see all these people wandering around like sheep, blinded to what was going on. He could see that they were lost in some parallel dream world. But... He, would, he had free access between what we would perceive as two different worlds. So it's just one world. It's just one world in terms of 
through that society and the system. So, so we are in it. Unless we come back to nature. So that means we're, we're, we're dealing with people who are consciously complicit with that world without knowing it. Some of us know it. Family members, your friends, bank managers, whatever. Yeah. So there hasn't been much of awakening, has the awakening you know, with a Quran and work and all that, notwithstanding and you know, all that pseudo equivalent. Because if they had, the evidence would be you know, people fleeing the sinking ship like rats to get back to nature and taking their kids out of every single last institution and turning off the TV forever. You know, even though I haven't done that. So anyway, um, today's a slightly different meeting because I did come with a, a sort of presentation as opposed to just a little intro, uh, which is, as, as I said, this is kind of going down memory lane for me in a sense, memory lane in hell, and just seeing how it looks more from the outside now, and if there's a little more coherence or more uh depths or roundness to it. Uh so but that so that doesn't necessarily lead to I mean I don't know where that leads now. Okay. Uh I think the I, I didn't ever get to exactly to you know this question of natural evil and what the place of evil is in the world, but I touched on it in a number of different places. That's a big philosophical question. So it isn't necessarily one we should even try to answer. Um, and I do think that having a practical focus is, is, is always good. Um, so I don't particularly know and I don't particularly want to, to, to steer the conversation hereafter. I'm just going to open it up to see if there's any comments. I'm sure there will be one or two. Um, if anyone's had anything come up for them, I'd say, I would say, let's maybe keep it as unabstract as possible. I, if things that come up in terms of feeling and sensation and resonances or memories, or let's try and keep it as personal and in the room as possible. I think would be the best, the best approach.
reset. Patriarchal reset. I, I grew up with Jimmy Savile being very much part of my my life. I think I I even wrote to him at one point. So all sorts of memories do 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 come up. Um, and I made just two or three little notes while you were talking that at the time appeared to be insights. But but now when I look at them, they, it just seems like you know, well, what do I know? Um, the, fir the first thing that occurred was, um, I, I can't quite remember why, but a few days ago, Jimmy Savile's image popped up on, on Google Images and my, my youngest daughter, the 13-year-old, happened to be in the room. I, I, wasn't, I don't think it was me looking up Jimmy Savile, but she just suddenly said, is that Jimmy Savile? So she's heard of him and she just sort of said, he looks horrible and he's definitely a nonce and then and then left the room <laughs> that's i don't know what she knows about jimmy savile but obviously she's heard of him um and i was thinking back to the 1970s and how these kind of predators were almost on the one hand jimmy savile feels to me like a like an aberration, like a loose cannon. That, that yes, there was propaganda then, back then, and society was very controlled. But it, it was in a crude way, and someone like Jimmy Savile could somehow slip through the the cracks. Someone like him could actually exist and work his way into the the upper levels of. Of, of society, whereas these days things seem to be so more sophisticated and controlled that to a point where ev everything in the mainstream now to me seems to be a psyop. But maybe it was back then too. I'm just, what do I know? <laughs> um, and and the other another thing that you mentioned was about power and power corrupting and I was reminded um, of, of something that a, a very wealthy um, multi-millionaire once said to me that I met and I, 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 I it wasn't me that prompted the question but he said that some some people say that um, when you get very wealthy you uh, and by implication powerful um you you become corrupted whereas his view was that wealth is a an amplifier of what really lies beneath like lies within i i don't know him well but i met him on a number of occasions and heard him speak and he and, and know many other people that met him and he does genuinely seem like a good guy who wants who's, who's out there to, to, to to generally help the world make the world a better place i suppose um, but then I, I immediately after that I thought of an old friend of mine that I met a couple of weeks ago and um, he's been quite successful as a civil servant in, in the UK government and um, he shocked me by the extent that he has become 
part of the system that has been rigorously and zealously imposing the uh, COVID mandates, including the vaccination agenda. Um, and I was really surprised by the extent that that the propaganda around that whole issue had has shaped his psyche um, and to the extent which he was a personally fearful of whatever the COVID is that it might kill him personally feeling responsible for those around him and um, I suppose taking on a, a powerful role of imposing rules and restrictions on other people and feeling good about doing it um, and how belittling he was of me for questioning any of that. I don't know why I'm telling you that now. I think it's to do with uh, this this juxtaposition between I remember the 70s and 80s of being, yes, there were agendas, but it was very chaotic and didn't seem very controlled. And somebody like Jimmy Savile could exist, whereas now I'm thinking everything is so controlled that, that loose cannons like him are, are, are less able to operate you know but then we have Epstein so I'm rambling now so I'll stop but <laughs> that was of some interest I think I think the rambling is part of the thought process because there is that sense that all these things seem connected in some way. Um, one of the things that occurred to me while you were talking about power and maybe there's uh, maybe wealth and power are actually facilitators. You know, they grant things possible that are not possible for people without money so you know it's something that instead of corrupting a person specifically it grants access to a person because you have the money to buy things and you have the power to get the keys which grant you access so looking at it that way there's perhaps a you're acknowledging maybe that these types of desires drives, fantasies, demons, however you want to conceptualize them, they are in us. Perhaps they're in everybody, you know, and then it's a matter of not that someone is corrupted into that state, but that somebody has this, you know, and they, they exist perhaps in the fantasy realm. And then in the, the case of somebody like Savile, who we call a pervert, right? Because they dwell in the fantasy and then they, you pervert and then a monster because they bring that into reality and they inflict that fantasy on others. 
um, you know, that's a way to say, this is not in me, you know, I'm not corrupted. I don't have that. And you're saying this is this other, and he's a special case. And I think that um, what uh, Jim was talking about, you know, by the end, you were saying, I'm just, I'm just rambling here, but I think the rambling is part of the thought process where things occur, pop up in your mind, because I think all this is related and pertinent. You have the tendency to deny or ignore that this stuff happens or to say that it happens, but it only happens in these special extreme cases. And then stuff like Savile or Epstein come up and, you know, you do start to get this sense of, oh, well, these people are part of a network and there is, you know, more of something more systemic here. It always seems like these uh, investigations end at a certain point and it's just put to bed and then it's on next to on to the next thing. So we it's it I would say it's probably covered up to the degree where you don't have a sense that it's systemic. You have a sense that it's a special case, maybe a special case with a small group of people or something like that. But all in all, we are we are our tendency to say this, these are special cases. This is not in me, this is in other people. Um, that is supported and that thought process is encouraged by the power base, by the media, you know, perhaps to protect people who are living that because they have the power and because they have been granted access to indulge in the fantasies, you know, as I say, fantasies, demons, etc., that are in all of us. Um, and I think that the tendency to say, no, 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 all that big bad stuff is a special case, everything's fine, is also part of the COVID narrative. Or you say, you're a conspiracy theorist, if you believe in that, this, you know, widespread eugenics program, uh, culling, what have you, that can't be true. The inability or the disinclination to consider that that is that kind of uh, negative anti-human process is all around us and is within us is what allows people to dwell in that fantasy space, pretend that they're pure, send out all the virtue signals and um, make the bad into somebody else, the scapegoat. I know that's a little abstract, but I was trying to ground it as well. Thank you, Kate. That that was really interesting. I, I just realised I recognise you from Horticulture. You've been on Jason's podcast, haven't you? I've heard I've heard them all. It's great. It's nice to see you. Um, I've also made some notes here, um, and like you, Jim, I'm questioning that. But I do think Jimmy is such a an extreme end of the spectrum of the one potential consequence of the whole 
culture and paradigm that he was that we exist in. Um, so I think <clears throat> observing him, studying him, actually is very useful to, for me at least, think about myself. Um, um, I see a connection that I don't know how much other people have looked into. I haven't seen the Netflix documentary, but I've looked at Jimmy a fair bit. And he, he seemed to have a lot of uh, big mother issues. Um, he referred to his mother as the Duchess. He, after she died, he kept all of his clothes. And I believe dry cleaned them every week or two, kept them in the plastic cellophane. You can see all this in the Louis Theroux documentary. He referred to her bed as the altar, I think, and he kept it in perfect condition. Um, so I think in that sense, you've got an interesting case for the trauma that a lot of people partly are uh, operating from. And um, you've also got the, the use of the occult and the magic with his spell-like deliveries of jingle jangle, now then, now then. He used to repeat these phrases and seemingly use this cigar like a, like a wand and dress, dress something like a wizard as well. Um, <clears throat> the reason I mentioned this is because I've made some notes and I thought as I was sitting here holding my pen that um, I'm in some way drawn to try to yield a similar power here. Whereas if I was just in an, what you might call a normal conversation with someone next to me on the land perhaps, or, you know, I wouldn't make any notes. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't be, well, I, I would be attempting to do something similar to what I'm drawn to do now, but perhaps slightly less so. So in that, in that sense, I'm feeling aware of that Jimmy urge in me. Um, and I, I also grew up watching him and uh, I, I, I didn't see the Netflix documentary, but I did after seeing Jason's email about this meeting, I, I hadn't heard that they made a documentary about him. So I just, searched it and I watched the trailer and there was a clip in there of what you know one of the classic Jimmy clips that they used to have on top of the pops the, the music show where between the songs they cut to the presenter and you'd have some of the audience all huddled around usually young women girls and uh, it even as a kid it always looked strange and fascinated me how the people in the audience were conducting themselves and how transfixed they were and sort of outside of themselves with this excitement of, um, of being close to this thing that we all learnt to aspire to, this powerful cultural um, dominator. And he, even when the bands would be notably miming along their songs, the people in the audience just, just looked outside of themselves trying to have a good time and you would see they would sort of suddenly remember themselves for a moment and then remember the camera and it's just it was always a very strange thing to, to watch even then actually um and i think seeing that footage in the trailer yesterday i i think because now we're we're so um used to filming ourselves and seeing ourselves people have learned to mask it a bit more um in a similar way i don't know if anyone follows sport but in, in the olden days if you see some football footage from the olden days and people score a goal they, they celebrate in a way that um that was more authentic because those people apparently had never actually seen themselves scoring a goal on a television because um 
there was no recording of it. There was just the live broadcast. So it was a sort of uh, naive, childish, jumping celebration. And then as the media developed and people were able to observe their image and so on, you get these sort of choreographed posts for the cameras, sort of, um, you know, which I think you probably see now in the audience of a live music show, if there even are any. I don't know, but people sort of, they know a bit more now how to pretend that they're better than that, let's say, culturally. Um, and so it, I, I say all this because it just struck me how complicit in a way, knowingly or otherwise, everybody was and still is, but as I say, they're better at hiding it, all believing in this awful, crazy narrative of that something something meaningful and something close to them is happening and, and, and you know truly to their soul and I, I grew up with that and I grew up aspiring in, to be on top of the pops and uh, to to get that you know and it's that same drive that makes me want to hold this pen and make notes so that I can well I don't know I guess get some kind of affirmation or love attention so I thought I'd just mention some of those things um, that I've made notes of. Uh, I, I would just add that you can also see in the documentary about Jimmy with Louis through just how sad of a man he was that, in, you know, by the end of his life there, he was calling the local newspaper because he had broken his ankle or something, one of his bones, and he wanted to get a photographer down to get a bit of coverage. And, he, and you can also see him lying about petty issues like having having a certain cabin on a boat that was actually a lot better than the one he'd been given. He's a desperately lonely, unfulfilled um, character. Um, I know I appreciate I've rambled here. Just a couple of more points. One is the tick issue, because moving to the land, as I have done for the last couple of years, the ticks are really in my life. And I've had to learn to remove them from our dogs quite regularly at certain times of year, of the year. And uh, initially, I couldn't really bear to touch them. I have a similar feeling to what Jason was talking about. It's a horrific, horrific things. And I was quite baffled about it and interested in the claims that the Lyme disease is engineered and so forth. But I, I did read up on them. And um, if the the science that I read is, to, is, is accurate, I believe it said that the vast percentage of them are found in the first three metres of the edge of a forest which I thought was interesting because any forest here, you're never far from the first three metres. You're usually not anywhere near a forest, but there's so little actual um, diverse land left that the ticks are, I would imagine, far more abundant than they would have been or would be in a, in a less um, demonic human world. If the forest was as it could be, I, don't, I, I suspect there wouldn't be so many ticks. So I think it's quite an interesting um, uh, symptom that maybe, and maybe on a human scale, you, you have something similar happening. Um, and just as a final point, um, who's the current Jimmy? I wondered whether it might be one of the, I, mean, I don't think anyone's going to have his specific tastes. Um, but I think maybe one of the big philanthropists, so-called philanthropists of our age who um, commit a lot of harm to young people and uh, deceive us all with their 
in my opinion, dishonest claims to being care caring and in touch with themselves when in fact they're chasing something that seems to me um, in the direction of, of what Jimmy and I am trying to as well. I'll just get my notes. True. I just have to get them all right a minute. And then notepad. So uh, the interesting thing that happened to me this week was when I was feeding my dog. And uh, I gave him a bowl of food. And I was watching him eat. And... Um, it kind of occurred, I was just thinking, oh, if I put my hand down there and, you know, touch the ball, it'd kind of growl at me. And then I imagined, well, if it was a, a pack of wild dogs and they were, you know, having a feast, that they'd probably rip my hand off if I tried to reach in and, and, and grab the meat or grab whatever they're eating. But then it occurred to me how profoundly beautiful that desire to live, that uh, rabid, violent, aggressive um, desire to will to, to, to live is, and that is actually sort of the dark side of, of nature, like of earthly nature. Um, and, um, you know, um, John Lash talks about, uh, you know, the beauty of the predator in, in, in nature. Um, the, the panther and the, and the big cats in particular. So it was, it was kind of like that. And I guess I'd never really kind of had that direct insight into that kind of wrathful aspect of nature. But nature has to be that way. It has had it, is it, a, it has had to be that way through the history of the planet in order for life to, to exist. So without it, it can't exist. So it's dependent on this savagery. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Now that that is different, it's basically sort of allude to animal difference between animals and psychopaths, I guess, early in the presentation. But um, that was something that occurred to me during the week, which was interesting. Um, uh, I guess out of that, there's sort of the idea that there are several we're referring to several kind of different kinds of natures so there's the one i just talked about which is the sort of the savagery the, the savagery but the beauty also of of earthly of the nature that is the mother earth so that we reference to the big mother the big mother of of the, the planet itself the, the and we refer to that nature and we often refer to nature too as the nice kind of aesthetic parts of nature like the mountains and the running streams and the beautiful flowers and the singing birds and the and the lovely trees and we sort of give it this sort of glossy in some way um uh sanitized way even though we talk about nature it's sort of something that's sort of more pure than society we can sort of sanitize it as well by just talking about the kind of things that bring us pleasure when we, when we observe it but um 
Um, and then there's a kind of this that the, there's the metaphysical nature too. So when we talk about our, our own nature, our inner nature, well, our soul nature, the, the God, the divine nature, that that's another nature altogether. So I, I guess I'm not seeing nat- the, the term nature as sort of some homogenous term, but there is actually different variations. And um, I'm really big on, on talking about the, the planet and the planetary energy power too. But um, and so maybe that can lead to the ancest, the idea of the ancestral uh, id, I guess. Um, just in again this week in my um, algorithm, YouTube algorithm, it's, it threw up um, probably because I've been um, spending some time on sort of geopolitical analysis of the kind of Russia-Ukraine situation. So it sort of threw up um, um, some uh, historical. Anecdotes, uh, sort of done in a documentary form, but pretty interesting. But they're basically writings from history about horrific things, you know, whether it's being an executioner or the current one I'm watching is a Russian soldiers um, writing about the horror of the Napoleon Wars and, you know, it kind of goes on and on and on. So in some ways, some... You, you know, as we've been talking several of us have been talking about the the, the predatory id, um, those sort of savage and brutal drives that we that we do have within us have been in human beings historically for a really, really long time. Um, and I guess they've, they've, they've found ways to drive to power and there's many uh, historical, um, you know, examples of that. So, I mean, how many do you want to, Vlad the Impaler, Caligula, I mean, goes on and on and on, Stalin, um, just goes on and on and on. So these, I mean, while Jimmy Saville was his own particular entity, these kind of brutal individuals with who just allow their kind of savage sub-level instincts to just drive them um, have been in history forever and as we are all connected as human beings, biological entities, we do share them. Um, it's kind of the, another idea of just that, um, I mean, I grew up in a country town and in Australia. It wasn't sort of so bad in terms of violence. But I do remember sort of meeting people who lived in London or Britain around the 70s and you might have went to school then or sort of they would have sort of tell me how they used to get beaten up and, you know, you just had to learn to fight and all that kind of stuff. It was sort of a bit of a shock to me. So I do know in other parts of Australia and, and even in my own hometown, um, Maybe I wasn't so exposed to it, but um, violence and, you know, pub brawls and all this kind of stuff was always there. And I guess it was always um, um, able to sort of come to the surface in those kind of environments as well. And also remember particular jokes um, that you'd, you'd have in, in society, like, for example, even in my small hometown, you know, the jokes would get around about the, you know the priest and the and the and the kid or the the bestiality um, guy. You know, had sex with a horse or something like that. You know, I mean these these things were kind of these sort of um, 
you know, they were they were jokes, they were, but they came the truths come out in jokes, whether you know literally true, but certainly the uh, archetype of those behaviours and those incidents were certainly come out in, in the jokes that people would tell. Um, I think that's kind of about it, actually. Um, the uh, Jimmy Seville, I, I'd never really heard of him, um, probably until a few years ago, about four or five years ago, I guess when he died. Um, I, I Thomas Sheridan did several hours of presentation, which were really, really interesting, really good. He had him, um, he speculated that the reason he had white blonde hair was um, in honour of Moira Hindley, I think. And he also thought uh, he was probably associated with the Yorkshire Ripper murders because I think he was friends with the guy who was accused of doing that. So anyway, that was a really interesting presentation. Um um, regarding to how we got away with it, I think the just, <clears throat> you know, that kind of level of television media at that time, I think as um, Jim kind of alluded to, it was maybe as well, Daniel, that it was kind of pretty innocent and we're all a bit gaslit about, um, you know, television back in the day and anybody who was on TV was sort of a figure that was larger than life and could get away with kind of anything. And then there was sort of a, a seedy, complicit and um, compromise culture there. Um, I think if um, it would be pretty hard to indulge or explore those kind of primal instincts in any form of social situation without meeting pretty dodgy and compromised individuals, which is... Um, probably why it's, it's such a dangerous and sort of seedy scene. Um, but yeah, that's my notes for the session so far. Uh, I find it hard to stay with myself sometimes when I'm listening to other people and I just, um, yeah, I, listening I was thinking um you know I've kind of um had to fight off disassociating a couple of times it's just feel a bit um triggered because of my own um history but I, I don't know a couple of things I almost feel naff saying it now because Simon mentioned the birds but when um Jason you started talking about the victims and the kids behind the stage or whatever could hear the birds sort of have this um I don't know the proper musical word for it but a like a chorus chorus but with different um I don't know there's a proper word for it that I don't know and that and they sort of stayed making that sound for just sort of that bit, which was, and it was a little bit uncomfortable for me. So I just sort of tuned in listening to them. And um, I don't know, there was something. And then that applying just whatever without having to try and comprehend, um, like actually comprehend the something like the uh, reason that it exists or 
all of it, just the the simple thing I could bring back to myself was thinking, imagining whatever it is in him, even if it's there was kind of no human left and there was just some kind of dark force in there running the show or just to simplify calling it uh, a darkness, that imagining that him and all that kind and everything complicit within and stuff just sort of covering covering the earth like a grid and that that's um, somehow um, part of what is creating a prison here and then thinking in my life like I this afternoon I had a um, coffee with a friend who's having a pretty difficult time and there was an opportunity like he kind of made fun of this person who it's pretty easy to, you know, someone that we both know. And I remember having this moment where I just was like, oh, I don't want to participate in that. And I just sort of like swayed it away, not in a goody two-shoes way or whatever, but just, you know, they had no idea what I was doing, but it was like a choice I was making to be kinder. And um, I think that, so when I make um, other choices that are um, like to think about stuff that's hateful or resentment or thinking, you know, um, whatever, which I could have done with this conversation today and like, you know, probably did about something else earlier in the day or whatever, that that's complicit in that same kind of greed of whatever darkness that's... Um, somehow you know my I'm pretty tired <laughs> as well but the thinking of it um just the image I had of the it being what's um holding us sort of pris prisoner sort of thing I don't know if that makes sense but um that because I think you started out talking about you know having to apply it to ourselves and that's what I came to me yeah
yeah, I think that that's a very good um, description of something that, by definition, we're all going to be aware of, that we're in the web. So I talked about complicity, but what I didn't talk about was um, the way that we're all affected as well by the by the things that are done to other people. So um, that's, that, that may be a hidden layer to what was going on there with Jimmy Savile, that he was part of organized ritual abuse of children, which is a way to create um, a kind of constant cacophony in the human nervous system. If you traumatize enough individuals and those, those individuals grow up to have children and, and, and carry those memories around, whether they're the memories in their bodies or the ancestral memories that are passed on to them, then that extends that web of trauma into everything, into everyone. And actually, before Sally spoke, I mean, partly because I wanted to hear from Sally, but I didn't necessarily want to push her. She didn't want to speak. I was, I was thinking of asking who, who here is feeling, or who here feels that they've been impacted by the kind of things that Jimmy Savile did? And who, who, who feels that they've been directly impacted? Or, well, now I'm talking about indirectly. Uh, so I was already feeling that there was a need to tune in at a more visceral level to what we're talking about. <clears throat> and uh, I mean, pr prior to that, because I mean, everybody shared, I think it's at Kamal now, and everybody had a different take and a different perspective. Um, but there are a number of things that were brought up more than once. And um, <clears throat> one thing that occurred to me was, while a number of people were sharing, was that we have a tendency to separate the evil from the good in, in life in general, but in uh, if we look at somebody like Jimmy Savile, we can say, well, he he was a famous and he was considered a philanthropist and a hero and so on because he did all these good things. But then we found out that he did all these bad things. And that was how he framed that as well. Like he made these jokes or these little talks about how when he got to the pearly gates, uh, if, if, if St. Peter pointed out all the, the bad stuff he'd done, which nobody knew about that, I mean, it wasn't generally known about at the time that he was saying this, um, he would point out all the good things he'd done. And if St. Peter didn't acknowledge those good things, he'd break his fingers, was what he said. Uh, and so what, what are the good things that, that Jimmy Savile did, supposedly? Well, he, he, he raised loads of charity for uh, hospitals. That's number one. That's the biggie one. And then the second one that's it's not necessarily overtly stated because it's a bit harder to square it with the evil stuff, but he was a cultural pioneer. He was the first DGA 
uh, he created Tuppers of Pops or helped create it. Uh, uh, Jim will fix it. He made kids' fantasies come true. So just generally as a cultural influence uh, that if it wasn't for the other stuff, that would still be seen as a positive, as a positive thing. Well, and Daniel was touching on the ways in which, uh, and it occurred to me as well, and I mentioned it today, like Jim will fix it. And Daniel was saying about Tops of Pops, where society is a spectacle. So people are learning to pretend to be something they're not. They're becoming more and more conscious of the image, and they're trying to align themselves more and more with the image. So that the way that they behave fits the image rather than what they're actually feeling on the insides and literally in top of pots, they have to pretend to be having fun. Uh, so that, that, you could say that that is an example of the evil that Jimmy did that is considered good, right? He was training a nation to identify with the image, to learn how to pretend, to learn how to be an authentic, to seek glamour, to seek fame, to seek power, et cetera, et cetera, all that. I mean, that's pretty easy to, to see, uh, at least for those of us who are already you know, sufficiently alerted to the consequences, you know, where that road leads to, um, even if you're not Jimmy Savile. Uh, the general fix-it thing, I mean, that really occurred to me while watching the, the, the show is, is that you could say that that's a form of child abuse in itself is to realize kids' fantasies because it, 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 it uh, reinforces the idea that, um, well, number one, that those fantasies are worth realizing, these mundane materialistic fantasies about, uh, well, whatever they are. I mean, there's an enormous number of different things, so some of them would have been more benign. Um, but then number two, the idea that somehow uh, your fantasies can come true if you just have Uncle Jimmy to do it for you, or you know, the system, or the BBC, or etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The whole idea of realizing fantasies, making fantasies more real, itself is that's the, the child catcher. That's a different aspect of child catching. And, and as we saw, literally, it led to those children being physically and sexually abused in exchange for. The fantasy, you could say, they got their, their fantasies fulfilled and then they had to fulfill Uncle Jimmy's fantasies. But you can't really separate the two. I and mean, Jimmy was putting his toxins into those kids, not just by sexually abusing them, but also by, by empowering their fantasies. Jason, yeah. I'm just trying to interject that the, um, the mean, dual meanings of fix, too, fixing like fixative in um, uh, developing a photograph, fixing as in, you know, uh, intervening in order to uh, make something happen that's not right or not legal, you know? So it's being used in this way that he's mending something that's not quite right. But I mean, the, I think that the role as a fixer is, is uh, completely pertinent, you know, just uh, uh, exerting, your own power and influence to um, to force something to happen. Yeah, and I mean, he was a fixer for adults as well as kids. And fixing has to do with you've got to reset reality. Essentially, things aren't going the way that 
whether you want them to do, whether you're a kid or whether you're a, you know, a royal member of the royal family or a politician, you want somebody to come in and reset reality, as they say, so it conforms with, with the goal. And there may be that what Kate's pointing out, there's a correlation between if you do that, if you impose your will and your fantasy life onto reality, uh, you will distort it, number one, but also you may fix it in this other sense. It gets stuck, it gets frozen in an image of its of its artificiality because it's artificial, because it's imposed. It, it can't it can't flow. There's no natural flow or rhythm to it. It's just, so it just stays. I'm thinking of my brother now with his suits and all that thing. And he he did let. I mean, well, he literally got crucified, but he also literally kind of got fixed in an image when he when he when they did a play of his life right before he died. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot in there that's quite difficult to articulate about the kind of. Uh, spell casting that Jim was involved in, Jimmy. Uh, the, the last thing I wanted to mention was the, the hospitals. Um, and uh, that's the hardest thing. I wrote a piece about it for Big Mother recently. That's the hardest thing to question the good of. But because we just think of modern medicine and hospitals, or we did until the last couple of years, as an, as an unequivocal you know, boon, benefit in society. And those hospitals, they house sick people and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the fact is, is those hospitals were also, they also served as um, hunting ground for Jimmy, Jimmy Savile. I mean, that was, that was, he wasn't just doing it as cover so he would look like a good guy. He was doing it so that he would have access to those hospitals and could freely abuse the patients. So that means that those, that those places, those hospitals that were apparently there to heal, serve and help people and protect them were not, they weren't that. They only appeared to be that, just as Jimmy Savile only appeared to be a benign you know, figure. Those hospitals also, and, it, and it's likely even that the Broadmoor, for example, and the mental hospitals, but even the, the other hospitals, even the whole national health system, uh, was a front for Tavistock and mind control and all that stuff. So again, we think of a hospital as something right, that what the whole idea about what a hospital is needs to get recalibrated. And, and, and then even the whole ideology that says we need hospitals, right? that we need uh, a national health service, that we need to take care of our health or to, to, to uh, keep death at bay or to keep sickness at bay. Like there's a whole ideology in there which isn't separate. So, so I, don't, yeah, I don't think it's possible to actually separate the good that Jimmy Sell did from the bad. Uh, it's, it's, it's shades of uh, malevolence. Shades of malevolence. And, and I think the, you know, the, 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 the um, consistent or prevailing fact is divorcing, being divorced from reality. So even though a hospital divorces us from physical reality by imposing forms of health and medicine and body care and all the rest of it on us, through you know culturally indoctrinated fear of death and fear of sickness then although it may have short-term benefits the long-term 
consequences are, are not beneficial to us because it's creating more and more of a filter between us and physical, natural, organic reality and, and pushing us more and more and more, more tightly into this corner of the, of the artificially generated image of the body and of the self. Uh, which is the prison, which is the net. That's how I was doing that. It's this, this energetic weave that, that has caught all of us in it now, like flies in it, in a spider's web. I think, I just think, oh, sorry, did somebody else start to speak? But I, I think this whole idea of fixing and all because hospitals, hospitals fix in the form of mending. That's the whole thing and everything. All these things that are seen as um, as good things, as uh, philanthropic agenda endeavors, they all have to do with fixing, you know, and so something like medicine as it's practiced today. You know, I'm not that familiar with Christian science, but um, Christian scientists, I believe, do not believe in that because they say that interferes with the will of God. And, um, you know, so there is also that sense that hospitals and fixing, you know, you're intervening, you're intervening with a, with a goal, a human agenda. And all, I mean, all of this, almost any philanthropic agenda endeavor is, uh, is trying to fix something. So there, I, I, I hadn't really thought of it in the sense of that word before as being an intervention that is um, with the goal of trying to prevent something that is taking its course from happening. And even when that is just the natural course of somebody's life and the body going through its own aging process. Which but, I mean, it leaves the question of what, what, what we're here to do as human beings, not here to fix the problems, because it only makes them worse. Uh, and I don't know if this, will, if this will connect, but one kind of unfinished thought I have, and I'm hoping I can finish it by, by starting to talk about it, has to do with like if Jimmy Selwood, he was part of, he was a central player and an influencer in this culture of the image, the creation of the image and the fixing of the image and the replacing of the reality for the image, this whole, that whole thing, the matrix. Um, that, all that's about getting further and further removed from physical reality, disassociated, disembodied. And one of the, I mean, maybe the only real uh, countermeasure to that is to have full-on contact with reality. So in what way, and presumably that what was driving Jimmy Savile to commit those abuses was partly or even primarily the fact that he himself was so, was trapped in this image, was disembodied and, and, and couldn't even feel real as like a phantom or a race and was possessed by these appetites that were physiological appetites, but anti-natural unhealthy ones, lusts of the flesh, you know, taken to a pathological degree. So they were all about, like, insofar as he was this kind of disembodied, limbo, trapped race, maybe even this is the entity that possessed him, maybe it was even his mother, 
trying to feel real by extreme physical experience and sensation, you know, violence, rape, torture, abuse. Uh, what was it? What was the effect on on the victims? Was it was it only that? Because those victims were actually being lured into this fantasy realm as a trap for the abuse. But even if they didn't get abused, uh, they'd still be trapped in the fantasy realm. Because, well, I mean, Jimmy couldn't abuse all those kids, but he, he was harvesting thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of children were part of Jimmy's harvest. There was a small, presumably a small portion that he actually physically abused. And the assumption is, well, those were his victims. But what if, I said, I didn't know where this thought was going to go, and it's, you know, I'm a bit disturbed by where it's going, but I'm going to, you know, keep it with my own experience, my own life. What if actually those who were physically abused by Jimmy Savile, in a certain sense, had more opportunity to escape the, the, the maze of the false identification image factory than those who weren't? Because at least they had a wake-up call. And one of the, the, the victims um, in the in the documentary said that she described how he abused her when she was a young girl, <clears throat> I think she's about 12, and he would put his hands, trigger warning, he, he would put his hands in her clothes and her shirt and down her knickers, and he would put his hands in her vagina. And then and then she described how he would also put his hand in her mouth, force his hand in her mouth. And she said that for some reason that was the worst form and that she ended up, when he would do that, she felt like she, she wasn't even a person anymore. He was turning her into an object. Now, that's what the whole culture does. So that, that person, uh, it's possible that what Jimmy Savile was doing to her made her aware of what he was already doing to her and what we've all had done to her. So, so it's possible, although that, that, that trauma can destroy a person, absolutely, but it's also possible that that, that um, allowed for an awareness to happen that facilitated or made more possible the necessary insights and the necessary actions to, to get free, to extricate, to become real. And as I said, I mean, I, it's, a, it's a disturbing train of thought, but something, I mean, I've said, I've said something similar to Sally on a different occasion regarding her experiences. And I've in certain ways testified, although in my own case, in my own case, I don't have any actual memories that really constitute abuse. I mean, I know my brother was hard to me when I was very young, so I don't come up completely empty. I can, I can retrieve something, uh, but most of the evidence is in my body, my body memories and my symptoms, and similar to Sally, that's a decade of pain and fatigue. Um, but anyway, I would say it's sufficient for me to, to know that that I had some extreme interference as a child. I, I suffered some extreme interference in my physiology, my physicality, and my sexuality. 
And I and uh, although I can see the ways that that messed me up, I can't really separate the ways that it messed me up from from how it helps me to align myself with life and to develop a kind of ethics or a kind of responsibility that is that I wouldn't have done otherwise. And then that I think is very rare in this world, actually. And in my case, maybe I don't know in Sally's and I don't know in other people's, but in my case, it, it does it does involve um, an awareness not just of my own um, trauma, but my own capacity to inflict trauma, my own dark appetites. It's all it's all one piece really. My responsibility is because number one. I'm aware of how much my power has been crippled and I've had to experience powerlessness. I've had to learn to become okay with being powerless in order to retrieve my power, in order to heal my wounds. Uh, but also um, I've had to really see, acknowledge and own up to the ways in which I have abused power. How you know, I'd rather not have the power, I'd rather be powerless than have power and abuse it ever again. So, so my, I mean, my impression is, is, is as I said, that terrible as it is what happened to, to some of those victims, um, we, we might have it upside down because it may be worse what happened to everybody else. But to, I was just thinking, um, like relating to what you're talking about, but I'm um, thinking about the two friends of mine that uh, I just found the, it was the most, I don't know, hurtful or whatever to um, see them kind of unquestionably go and get vaccinated and stuff with two friends that had had not the same but similar um, experiences in childhood and um, uh, so I do like you know and I have um, I remember at the beginning of COVID thinking oh this is one time I'm really grateful that I've had such a shit childhood because I can see all of all of this, you know, I can see what's happening, and um, but then thinking about what's different in me than those two people I can think of, you know, that because um, yeah, I don't know, but yeah, it's difficult to talk for a long time at the moment because I do get a bit um yeah I just don't want to disassociate much or whatever but yeah so those not to keep you talking but those two people that you've mentioned uh you're saying that they had similar adverse experiences yeah the- yeah they both um sexually abused and one of them was um 
yeah, both on par kind of level of complexity to it and stuff and, you know, in their family and, yeah. And one of them in particular was before now, like she would um, even talk about having, you know, we would relate of being able to have extra sensory kind of perception experiences and even at the beginning of COVID and stuff, some of the stuff I would say about it, she would agree, but then she actually in her case she um, I think it's because she's a parent, maybe she lost custody of her um, son um, when she had a drug problem. She got clean for years and fought to get him back and stuff, and I think maybe she's still scared of that. Maybe that's her thing. My other friend, I just, yeah, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I've found both those people um yeah, just much more painful or whatever to try and understand or because they were they've gone along with the manipulations in the way that you have. Yeah, oh and because they couldn't see it. I just couldn't thought see it. Yeah, like Yeah, and they can't see that thing of, you know, how um, yeah, it's sort of hard to explain, but but just to be able to see how much of it really exists in the world, like how prolific it is and, like, you know, and thinking about, you know, when it's, using the example of a current Jimmy Savile and I was sort of, you know, it's not a comedian or anything, but Joe Biden, there's like really mainstream footage of him groping children and stuff in a um, photo shoot, you know, that level of everyone just ignores it. And um, then the stuff about his son in public, like that's it's that level of being in public, but yeah, I. Yeah, just. I don't know, just the fact that they can't see it, I guess. Um, and yeah, there's something different between people like us that have that same experience and them where it's. Um, yeah. The question just arises for me as to why, you know, why, why is it so common that sexual predation or sexual offence is so common? And is it something that's located in the body? Is it a, 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 a chemical addiction? Is it... Um, you know, a chemical response like a dopamine response or something like that when those drives are um, excited. Um, because it's so just damn common. I mean, it's, it's, it is 
you, you know, if not the top entity trap or demonic trap for human beings, it's certainly top couple, but it's, it's probably the top one. Um, and it goes into the expanded topic about sexuality in general, but... Um, No, you can kind of just take it for granted that it's there and, oh, well, that's what evil is and it's, it's, you know, it's one of its manifestations is common, that's common is sexual abuse. But, I mean, other than the sort of the biological desire to, um, you know, for the man to ejaculate and for the woman to receive the ejaculate, which is goes back to what I said earlier about that when my dog was having his his meal, that that the big mother of the planetary nature just is ferocious in its drive to to live, and that um, rape is uh, historically probably deep within our all of our genetics because if you look at military history alone um, through the millennia, uh, rape is just as common as killing someone. I mean, that was just the spoils of, of, of the military crusade. I mean, these men were generally... Um, Along, I mean, let's, let's not even presume that they're, they're cultured and civilized. They're a long way away from their uh, their wives or partners if, if they had them, and you know they're in marching for long periods of time, and it's a male only environment. And when they hit that village, all that pent up drive is is you know expressed, and um, in a terrible manner, but maybe it is just the planetary nature. It's just coming out that it's in the it's in the body. It's it's a biological thing, and it's deep within the body, within the veins, and the and the material of the body itself, within the chemicals of the body, to just act and that sort of power powerful id instinct to act that way unless it's successfully sublimated um, will just express itself. And when you're in that kind of environment, like a military environment or a, a war or a campaign, there's no one there to tell you right and wrong. It's, it's chaos. So all those things are going to be expressed. I um, think one thing that characterizes humanity is that we do have these sort of multiple levels in our psyches um, and uh, kind of look at the progression of the animal kingdom from insect to reptile to mammals and then from mammals you have bovine herbivores to predators and 
are omnivores and simians, apes, and humans. There's this sort of, it seems to me there's this sort of hierarchy of, um, of not intelligence per se. I mean, I, I, all nature is intelligent just in different ways, but there seems to be increased complexity. And I think one of the things about humanity is that we have the basic instincts from all these other levels, oh, my camera is not, of um, the animal kingdom, reptilian and mammalian, mammalian emotions, but there's also this other level of racist nation and being able to reason through things, logic, um, language, logos, but it's not, everything is all there. And I think there's, there's a sort of inhibitory function that many people have, perhaps innately, and also societies may encourage it, that may prevent the outbreak of certain things. And perhaps other people, either through childhood trauma or widespread societal trauma, those inhibitory factors aren't as properly functioning. And it's, there's pleasure in fulfilling basic biological um, urges and eating or sleeping or, or having sex. Um, and, you know, there's the more complex urges and instincts and functions seem to have more um, kind of nuanced levels of pleasure, but the base urges, there's just this huge, yeah, it's like a dopamine hit. And there's that biological level, but also maybe there is a sort of spiritual aspect in which if humanity is called toward something higher, angelic or divine, or however one wishes to express it, that, that involves a choice. So we can choose to tune into something that's higher, or we can choose to just ride along the sort of baseline biological level, wherever that leads us. And the, both choices have complicated, have, um, have complicated wide ranging implications in each other. And if some people, even if you have certain functions inhibited, you can still choose to exercise something or not. Someone can choose to give in to a um, type of intense physical desire. They can choose to defray that. Then there is the level, the aspect of entities who want to pull us downward, I guess you could say, to another level. And their influence, but their influence has to always be at the level of influence because if it's a compulsion that can't be resisted, then that negates free will. And perhaps one aspect of our the society that we live in is that it constantly incentivizes the fulfilling of base instincts and um, giving us distractions preventing us from tuning into perhaps higher realities. And maybe that's what allows human parasites, our predators, a free reign because perhaps our contemporary society just incentivizes the open expression of those sorts of urges, even while putting formal checks and limits, you know, laws banning this and that, but there's still this pumping in the media, sexualized clothing, 
for children, um, uh, it, widespread pornography, perhaps, um, you know, the making, uh, you know, poor food and, and intoxicants that may cloud the judgment. And maybe that just creates a perfect storm in which certain types of evil um, can just slip in and run wild. It's also a marker of our tolerance of uh, certain types of evil. I was thinking before somebody was bringing up the priests. I'm sorry, I forget who it was, but somebody was talking about the priests and how there were jokes at the time that about abuse by priests and you know everybody knew about it everybody knew that priests were abusing children i mean like you really knew about it right it's not like you just kind of had a sense you knew about it but it was almost like a, a mass hypnosis or something a disconnect between it's like you'd know about it without realizing, oh, a crime is being committed right there. A horrific crime is being committed. It's like, no, you know about it and you're going to make a joke about it. You know, in the same way that we have a, uh, we all support sexualized clothing. We, you know, tolerate and indulge in looking at advertisements, sexualized clothing for children or whatever it is, it's like, we know that that's, we know what that's about. But at the same time, there's like this hypnosis that disconnects it from that there being an actual victim there, that there being, there are any actual victims, same way with the priests. It's like, there's a total disconnect to understanding there were individuals, individual small children victimized by that. So it's like a, the, a little mental split, too, that happens in the, you know, mass of the population. It's like, oh, yeah, I can kind of joke about that. Or, oh, yeah, I can say that that's all right. It's like we're ha half asleep or totally asleep in that one way, hypnotized or something.
You better subscribe to me If you want to talk with me Subscribe to me. If you wanna hold my hand, wanna try and understand, wanna look in my eyes, you better open wide. just how deep a philosophical inquiry we're involved in here. Hopefully it is more than philosophical, but it's not less than. And um, yeah, so I'm in two minds about whether to keep chasing this dragon, that's probably a bad analogy, um, 
or, or, or let it lie, let it go back to sleep. I mean, I think it's worth saying that I don't think that any of us are going to resolve this by intellectual inquiry, by understanding it or thinking that we understand it. And that the purposes of talking around this, well, to Phrases come to mind. One was original wound, and the other was foreign implant. Something's been put in us. We've been wounded, and then into that wound, something's been inserted that doesn't belong there. And the wound can't heal until we can remove that uh, object. Um, and to to remove that object means, or that in, interjection means going into the wound. I think that once the interjection is removed, then the wound heals itself naturally over time. As, as to what, what that is, um, anyway, I didn't finish the thought that um, by talking around this wound and this interjection, we have the opportunity to, to feel into it for our senses and our awareness to go into the wound and to even, even encounter the, the installation or the interjection, the thing that was put in us, this hard foreign object. Uh, and that awareness can lead to a, uh, well, it can lead to something. I think the light of awareness just like light on the shadow, it, it can dissolve or it does dissolve things that don't belong there. Uh, so, so I would say that that's, that's where the work's really done is at a sense level, the realm of the senses and, and below the threshold of the senses even, what we call it or what was called the unconscious by Freud and company. Uh, but we, we just as well call it the body and then what the body is uh, opening onto, uh, which we, we, we can call the soul. And I think the wound, or I'm thinking this now, I know the wound is kind of some, in some psychosomatic realm between the body and the soul. It's partially a physical wound, and then it's partially a psychic, psychological wound. I don't know if the soul per se can be wounded, but certainly the body and the subtler bodies can be disrupted and uh, prevented from having uh, or being a full flowing uh, connective circuit board between the body and the soul so the soul can be embodied and the body can be ensouled. And, and in that disrupted area, of, of subtler bodies is where the, the foreign implant is inserted through a trauma, through a wound, but itself is traumatic, perpetuates the trauma internally and potentially externally in our behaviors. And 
yeah, so so that that can happen. And I think talking about these things can facilitate that process if it's done in the right spirit, in the right uh, tone. Uh, I forgot I was going to say something else. Uh, oh yeah, and but the other thing that's really essential, and, and this can also be talking about it can be a way to facilitate this too, is uh, allowing our awareness to go into that area of disruption and infiltration and become correspondingly agitated by the awareness of the wound uh, and, and not react to it, not be driven by it. Because somebody, um, I think it was Simon Knight was touching on how, uh, how we're driven by something in our bodies. Simon was suggesting it's something natural, but I would suggest it's not. And that is the, that's the crux of it, that something is inserted there that is, is unnatural, anti-natural, inhuman, non-human. And there's a strange paradox here, which is that a human being, uh, if, he, if he doesn't take the opportunity of free will to become more than an animal, because we're not, we're not primarily animals, to move towards the divine, to being an instrument of the divine, the human being will fall beneath the level of the animal. There's no kind of in-between, there's no middle way. A human being can't just be an animal. Like, like some people would wish that we could, and even some philosophies are all about human beings just become more primal and then that'll be resolved. And I think that that does create a, a, a rationale, but also an impetus and a drive towards uh, destructive primal behaviors. As Simon was talking about the raping, pillaging soldiers, I mean, of course, war itself is an expression of the, of the primal become pathological. Uh, so, so yes, there's that inclination in all of us because we've been separated from our bodies. We want to get back to our bodies by being more primal, but then that it's a kind of primal that's disembodied, that's disconnected and dissociated. It's too, too much in the head. It's not actually in the body. And that's where the fantasies, the demons of the id take hold of us, the entities, and they use that, that, uh, those primal desires that are uncoupled from nature to, to drive us into pathological forms of abuse and destructivity. Uh, and so they, they, they feed themselves, they keep fertile the ground of the human psychosomatic system so that they can keep replicating themselves, these entities. And so, so this goes back to the Garden of Eden, that original installation of the satanic the, the serpent's bite which led to eve's biting the apple etc um and so yeah so what was put in us all the way all that way back then created this this um original sin this original wound this original uh, signal of, of anti-life that created anxiety agitation in the nervous system that was extremely uncomfortable and and the uh, it 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 uh, fermented forms of behavior from well, 
from Cain slaving, slaying Abel on that would relieve the tension and the anxiety of having that thing in us. So that, that's the thing that, that resolves it, that heals the wound, is, is feeling the anxiety, the tension, the agitation, the distress of having something in us that doesn't belong there, but rather than giving into it and letting us drive us into forms of behavior that reduces the, the dissonance of, of that uh, satanic implant because we become more satanic, so then it becomes more comfortable in us. Uh, rather than doing that, we allow ourselves to feel the terrible distress and dismay of being driven by demonic impulses into forms of behavior that that are destructive and anti-life. Uh, so, so I mean, it's it's a it's a perfect storm of unpleasant sensations, thoughts, and feelings. It can go on for decades, but if all the evil in the world is down to human beings not being able to sit still in a room, well then the, the cure and the resolution is, is sitting still, is just being willing to keep still and, and not be driven by anything but life, not be moved by anything but life, even if that means doing nothing. So, I, and I think that that's, um, that's a useful way to understand Jimmy Savile and how Crowley and how the beast in human form is nothing like a lion in the jungle. It's more like a tick, but we have to magnify a tick to very large proportions to get a sense of what it really was like on that scale. Um, the, uh, yeah, the behaviors that they were driven into were they might have been bestial but they weren't and might have even been animalistic but they weren't they weren't like anything else in nature like the human animal is, is a demonic vessel it's not some beautiful microangelistic form uh, because the human in its natural form and orientation is is closer to the angels than the beasts i think that we can really uh, see it very clearly. But anyway, so Jim, yeah, Jim Savile, uh, it's, it's a way for me to think about him that is more compassionate than condemnatory. Here was a man who was uh, overwhelmingly addicted to doing really bad things because, he, because it was the only way to relieve the agony within his own nervous system uh, of being who he was. I'm not saying that's an excuse. I'm just saying that that creates the context in which he was doing what he was doing. This is like this, this suffering he could not bear to face up to. And uh, I mean, there is a psychological template for that and it does relate to mother bondage, but I think I don't want to carry on much longer today, I think that would take too long if I were to go into that. Um, I, I was wanting to move more to more to more of a winding up mode. Uh, 
well, I suppose the, 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 uh, the thread there, without going into the psychological understanding of pedophiles, which I do think is fairly simple, but not simple enough, I could just sum it up now, um, is a child. Jimmy Savile, so far as he was a monstrous pedophile and other things too, uh, was probably trapped in an early experience as a child and in all the agonizing affect of that experience. And so psychologically and even physiologically incapable of any other kind of intimacy or, uh, or sexual expression besides that of abusing children. So it's it's a it's a ter terrible terrible paradox really is is that inside this hideous monster is this trapped traumatized child. And that's Jimmy Savile's true faith, the very thing that we want to protect from Jimmy Savile. But I would say, and to one degree or another, we all have not a Jimmy Savile within, although maybe that too, but we, we have that trapped, suffering child frozen within us, and we've shut it away, shut it away because its cry was too shrill and too, too uh, painful for us to hear it. And that's bad parenting for you. So, I mean, there's a fairly standard uh, formula there, really. The more you repress your emotions and your impulses and your feelings, uh, the worse they're going to be when they do come out. They're going to come in, the devil goes in the back door if you close the front door. You, they don't, if they're not allowed to come out naturally and healthily as anguish and dismay and sadness and, and fear, and all the things that that child experienced that it couldn't express at the time, if we don't let them come out in that way, then then they're going to come out in ways that are much more pent up and distorted and destructive. Create a whole culture that is designed to keep the traumatized children captured and caged for experiment, experimentation purposes. So I I mean, maybe what seems like a huge philosophical question and is and metaphysical and goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the, the origin of man and species and, right? It encompasses all of that. 
but as I said, there's no way we're going to really be able to map that in a way that represents the territory. So it's not as though we'll just give up, it's just that trying to map that uh, allows us to, uh, oh, oh, it's a way for us to put our attention on what's on the internal scar tissue, which is, which is more than a map. Right? That, that, that is a real true map that is also the territory of, the, of our experience of trauma, original trauma. Uh, we, we would never volunteer to put our attention on that, on that inner landscape. But if, you know, as, as our attention by talking about the big picture gets drawn more and more internally to the little picture, um, it's, it could be a relief. Actually, ironically, the thing that seemed more terrifying and overwhelming than anything in a certain sense is, it is the, the, the one thing we have most to fear is something in the past. Um, it's still a relief because, well, at least I can get to grips with this. It's finite. Something happened to me as a child and in the womb, and maybe a number of things, and there are a number of perpetrators and, you know, complicit. It was, it was a local conspiracy. It's all embedded in the larger thing of the history of the species, the evolution of the species. But, but it's still our, it's our backyard. It's our bedroom. We can tidy it up anytime we want. I'm not saying it's easy, but, but you can start anytime. Because you've got the got the coordinates of your body and of your psyche, and the more the body and the psyche are allowed to meet and harmonise, the more you become cognizant of the space-time coordinates of of your soul, which is uh, the sin qua non of being here. That's the only reason we came here. Was to give a was to ground that eternal essence in the temporal experience. And then absorb it fully, experience it fully, that the mysterious, unfathomable impossible reality of, of existing here and then and then uh, leave with it I mean the soul is a mystery but there's nothing that is a mystery to the soul and there's nothing that needs to be healed or resolved. It is the healing resolution of everything. Once you make contact with your soul, it's game over for the identity. And all, all, the, all the goals and the quests for power and the objectives and the things to fix, the problems, it's all, it's all moot. Not only do they not count, it's that they never did count. Right. Extreme complex 
complexity, complexification becomes absolute simplicity. And that sense that human beings are as simple and as natural as animals. It's just that human simplicity, a human destiny, encompasses the realm of the angels, the realm of everything. That's what the human being is. It's a bridge between infinity on both sides. How does that work? If you have two infinities with a, a finite bridge between them, well, you can't, uh, you can only know that by, by being it. Uh, last week, Simon Knight reminded me of Christ in the tomb, but now he really does look like some sort of Greek uh, icon. I think I put one of uh, Olympus to sleep, so I consider that a success. Since it looks like a very innocent sleep. Okay, well, I didn't know I'd be winding up on such spiritual. Uh, tones, but uh, I'm quite happy to have done so. Does anyone like to share anything before we wind the meeting to a close? Well, I'd say it's been a good one, but you can give me your feedback. But if it has been a good one, then we sort of do have to give thanks to Uncle Jimmy. I'm sorry I have to say it, but, you know, credit where credit's due, including to, to the devil and his minions, inspired something. And, I mean, if there is any hope for that lost, tormented soul, then I hope that we've... Uh, facilitated its return to the light. All for one and one for all. Otherwise it's all for nothing. the end of this year's podcast uh, there'll be one more Limitless and uh, I have no idea when it will be it will just depend on me feeling like uh, I have the suitable material for the final Limitless podcast uh, as far as uh, what you heard today that was a sample of the kind of explorations that are taking place on a weekly basis uh, Saturday at 1pm uh, uh, UK time 
which is uh, 2pm European time, uh, it's 10pm in Australia, Sydney, and I think it's around 8 in the morning on the East Coast, the US. And uh, these meetings are open to all. There is a sobriety requirement, which is preferably 48 hours sobriety, but special cases, uh, 48, 24 hours uh, can be sufficient. Uh, just email me if you're not sure. And uh, it's five euro currently to attend, and you can find a link to sign up for next Saturday's meeting, which I think will be something around uh, the mastery of despair. The general theme for these meetings is, uh, uh, verily I say unto thee, except the grain of wheat go into the earth and crack open, then uh, it will not bear any fruit. This is to do with... Uh, what it takes for our souls to fully land here in this realm and incarnate, uh, be fully born through our engagement in the laws of matter and the corresponding process of extricating our souls from the infernal hell realm of disembodiment that they're currently in, uh, the matrix, uh, such as it is, and all its different layers. That's the general theme of these weekly meetings. Uh, they span the spectrum between the very dark uh, socio-political reality that we're caught in all the way to the, the most um, profound metaphysical questions that human beings can ask themselves. And uh, as I said, they're open to all, and I'm hoping to encourage those of you who haven't come through the fourth wall to interact with me or haven't in some time to uh, take the leap into the unknown and uh, sign up and see what you find there. And in the interim, uh, there's also the option of uh, hearing these recordings or at least those that are the parts that the participants agree to share uh, in the contributor section of the landmademan.com website. Roll on thunder, shine on lightning, the days are long and the nights are frightening. Nothing matters anyway, and that's the hell of it. Winter comes and the winds blow colder. Well, some go wiser, you just grew older. You never listened anyway, and that's the hell of it. Good for nothing, bad in bed. Nobody likes you, you better off dead. Goodbye, goodbye. We've all come to say goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye. Born to be died in vain. Super destructive, you were hooked on pain. And though your music lingers on, all of us are glad you're gone. If I could live my life half as worthlessly as you, I'm convinced that I'd wind up burning too. Yourself as you love no one Be no man's fool and be no man's brother We're all born to die alone You know that's the hell of it 
Life's a game where they're bound to beat you And time's a trick they can turn to cheat you And we only waste it anywhere That's the hell of it Good for nothing, bad in bed Nobody likes you and you're better off dead Goodbye, goodbye We've all come to say goodbye, 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 goodbye. Born defeated, died in vain Super destructive, you were hooked on pain Though your music lingers on Well, all of us are glad you're gone